The production of this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the interviewees and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, or those of the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I am Ty Simpson, and I am a social change advocate at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. At the Coalition, we hosted a short series of podcasts to intentionally center the work of Indigenous leaders and tribal community members as their work and experience relates to domestic violence victim service provision. The creation of this podcast grew from our participation working with a Family Violence Prevention Services grant. Our role was to facilitate connections with three tribal nations and one urban indigenous community to understand how these communities are impacted by domestic violence. Podcasting is an avenue of storytelling, and storytelling is an important cultural dynamic for many indigenous people. Upon reflecting on what tools and resources would best serve and represent the indigenous community in Idaho, we made the decision to pivot from a print campaign to podcast. The interview questions are based on the goals and objectives of the Idaho Thriving Families Work Plan, as well as from input from Tribal Site Victim Service Program directors. These are Coeur d'Alene Tribe Stop Violence Program, directed by Bernie Lassau, Sart, Nez Perce Tribe, Uyit Kimti, New Beginnings Program, directed by Carrie Picard, and the Shoshone Tribes and the Shoshone Bannock Tribes Victim Assistance Program, directed by Audrey Jim. The interview participants were recommended by each of the tribal site coordinators or other service providers in those communities. The series of questions specifically address experiences by each interviewee. In addition, the questions incorporate the themes from the listening sessions conducted in year three of the Thriving Families Grant. I'll outline the connection between the themes and the guest as we move along the series. Lastly, the questions were also organically augmented to allow the conversation to move along freely. Our aim as part of the grant and within the podcast was to address the following goals. Improve systems and responses to abused parents and their children from underserved populations through the integration of a comprehensive anti-oppression and social equity framework to achieve positive change in state governmental systems that impact abused parents and their children exposed to domestic violence. Build capacity of the demonstration sites and statewide service providers to better serve parents and children impacted by domestic violence. And enhance evidence and practice-informed strategies, advocacy, and interventions for children and youth from underserved communities exposed to domestic violence. I'd like to explore a bit of background for you. While well-intentioned, this project had some harmful consequences and produced some important conversations to be had by the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence Team. We had to ask ourselves, how do we carry out grant work that is in partnership with tribal communities? What were the problems faced in our project? How do we make changes for future collaboration with tribes? The methodology we used was initially harmful. The questions used in the listening sessions were also harmful. And we didn't build a safe or secure place to engage in these conversations, nor did we provide aftercare. We are learning in our work that we don't invest in the storied connections and experiences of our people to inform best practices. We talk a lot about evidence and practice-informed strategies without engaging the voices of folks most impacted by violence. Your stories are valuable.
consider this an addendum to our podcast series. Like many authors, I stumbled upon a title after the book was written, Stories in a Good Way. The title of this podcast is a variation of the phrase, In a Good Way, which encases a philosophy across many Indigenous communities. We do our best to speak, act, and live our lives in a good way with goodness in our hearts and goodness of intentions. We believe that when we pour goodness into the world, we are honoring ourselves and each other. This podcast series, Stories in a Good Way, is a supplement to the Idaho Thriving Families webinar series entitled Showing Up in a Good Way, Best Practices for Domestic Violence Advocacy in Indigenous Communities, during which we explored the themes that emerged from listening sessions within Indigenous communities focusing on survivors or families families impacted by domestic violence. Hi, my name is Jade Stensmer Mokri. I am Coeur and I'm from Plummer, Idaho. My people are the Coeur people, we come from the lands of Northern Idaho and I like to think that we're very strong loving people. We love really hard. I love that and really love is a foundation of so many of our nations. invited Jade to participate after meeting her at the Coeur d'Alene Legislative Reception in Boise last February. She was in her crown and regalia, representing her people in a spectacular way. She really was captivating and drew so much attention. Keep in mind, this was a room full of politicians and lobbyists, tribal leadership and tribal lawyers, and then me. I was there to champion the House Concurrent Resolution 033, recognizing missing and murdered Indigenous people in Idaho. I wanted to answer questions from tribes and politicians as best as I could. It was the most difficult night of the lobbying and education process around the legislation, but also beneficial in that I was able to connect with Jane. So my grant work specifically addresses families impacted by domestic violence or violence in general. We try to take a anti-oppression social justice lens to how we approach serving folks who are impacted by violence. The grant says that these communities, our indigenous communities, are specifically referred to as underserved. So when you hear that term in relation to your community, how do you feel about it? I wouldn't say that it isn't not accurate. I mean, I feel like we get left out of a lot of different things and a lot of legislature and it's just like the native voice is just so hard to find in almost everything. So I definitely think that we're underserved and I don't, wouldn't want to say that we're like uneducated, but a lot of people just don't know where to find the resources when they're there. That makes a good point. So whether it's access, lack of access, or lack of knowledge about access, like those are all three very important questions. So you're making a good point there, especially since your community, much like my community, is remote and very rural in some places. Like how long it takes us to get to a service provider is actually a pretty huge obstacle. Who has a car? Who has gas money? Who has time? Is that person safe for the person in crisis or the family in crisis? So you're exactly right there. Jade is also young. She's 18 years old. She's already proving herself to be an outspoken leader, mindful of her community's needs. She carries her culture and her crown very well. 
a true matriarch in the making. The Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence takes the stance of intentionally centering young voices. How that looks in practice varies. Inviting Jade was my attempt at ensuring a young person's voice was heard as we try to change our narratives when we work with indigenous families impacted by violence. In your community, do you feel like your people have access to victim services from non-native providers that are safe? Like, What does that look like for you as a young person? If you have been or if you know somebody who's been in that situation who needs help, do you feel like your community has access to folks who could support them? Non-native? No, not really. The closest non-native resource would probably be in St. Mary's and that's like a 25-30 minute drive away and even there that town is historically racist so it's it's like you really don't have any access if the tribe is shut down for the week or if anything happens over a weekend you have to wait for Monday or and tribal police just have to turn everything over so you don't get anywhere. Can you expand on that a little bit? Tribal police have to turn it over. Who are they turning it over to? Usually the county or the state. It kind of depends on the situation and we're really understaffed with our tribal police. I think we only have like two full-time officers. Native voices are hard to find in this work. Many of you as non-native providers can attest to unanswered emails, unenthusiastic support or partnership from tribal communities, or our just blatant refusal to engage. This is not the responsibility of the tribal community, but the responsibility of the providers. What we know as best practices and what we know as service provision has to be fluid in order to address the unique needs of indigenous communities. How big is your reservation? I'm not really sure on exact like acreage, but it goes from the state line in Washington to a little past St. Mary's and then north towards halfway to Coeur d'Alene and south until the county changes. That's really interesting. One of our learns and best practices for domestic violence service providers is really understanding how far a family has to go to get service on the weekend if there is no access within their immediate geographical location, how much space it takes to get from one end of the reservation to another. In some parts of my res, it's about two hours, which is difficult if you don't have a vehicle. It's not exactly easy road either. Definitely winding along a river, which could be dangerous, especially if somebody's an elder or has a hard time seeing. But I don't think that some of the service providers that I've been able to engage with, they don't have a very meaningful or vast perspective of why geography matters. So we're really trying to encourage them to have a better understanding of what those jurisdictional lines look like and what that sovereignty looks like. We are indeed underserved. Reservations are not meant to be thriving locations for our people. Historically, they were prisons institutionalized by treaties. Reservations are remote and sometimes desolate. We are underserved because the resources and land that allowed us to thrive were removed from us violently. We were displaced from them violently. Also, the narrative is that indigenous communities are uneducated, but let us not forget that we are plenty educated, not in the way that makes academic sense to our non-native neighbors, but we are connected to our land by several thousands of years. What you really mean is we have lack of access. We can no longer access the education given to us by the land and by our language. Healing is also a part of my work when it comes to domestic violence and mitigating violence in our communities. I come from a tribe that is very strong in healing practices and spiritual practices. Can you tell me a little bit about what healing looks like and feels like for you and your community? So for me and my community, I feel like we really just like to, to get together. When I feel the most that we've healed as a community, it's probably like when we brought the canoes back into the lake for like the first time in like a hundred years.
and everyone was just there and ready and just accepting of just bringing this thing back. I feel like when we get together as a community, that's when we heal the most because we may not like talk about a lot of things, but just being there and being able to like visit with people that you don't really normally get to see, you just feel connected to one another again. And it's nice to remember that you're not alone. Absolutely. What you're saying resonates in a way with me because settler colonialism has us believe that everything, healing work, crisis work, intervention, all of that takes place singularly, like one person endures it. When in fact, our communities have endured violence over the last 400 years as communities and we healed as community and we are trying to move forward as as a community. So I think that taking that big picture or that big look at why community is so important to indigenous folks and then making a small version of that when it comes to mitigating and preventing violence is really important. So I hope that the service providers that hear us today like really take that away from our conversation. At the end of the day, non-native service providers are not readily accessible. For example, St. Mary's is a mere 30-minute drive from Plummer, like Jade mentions. And what should we do when that community is known to be racist towards the Coeur d'Alene indigenous people? We are already in crisis and have to navigate a shark tank while we're at it. I feel like everybody endures a certain amount of violence throughout their life. I wouldn't have enough knowledge of a lot of other people's experiences to say if mine was more or less than anyone else's. But on the reservation, I feel like you are exposed to a lot of different forms of violence, whether you know it or not. You know, as children, you're kind of raised around, oh, they're, they're too young to hear this, or like, you know, you still absorb it even if you don't know about it. Since this is the last episode, I feel compelled to share what I've learned personally and why this work is important. Like so many advocates, I am also a survivor of domestic violence. I was 19 years old, young, ridiculously naive, and easily swept off my feet. He was 32. He was incredibly handsome and charismatic, but like so many abusers, he exposed himself as a vicious, manipulative, and clever in the way that he was exacting control over my life and over my body. I was so young, easily manipulatable, and he took advantage. As the weeks and months stormed by, I never realized that I was being abused. I didn't realize I was being gaslit. We didn't have the words to express what was happening back then. I do recall trying to tell a cousin of mine about what was happening to me, and I remember very distinctly that she didn't believe me. I'll never forget that day when we were having that conversation. I'll never forget what I was wearing or exactly her words. She said, Well, he's never been like that to me or anyone else. Are you sure? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I wish I could tell you that it ended there. I wish I could tell you that I was able to win my freedom and bravely leave an abusive relationship, but it didn't. I didn't. I spent 10 years off and on with my abuser, in and out, up and down, mostly rage, mostly pain, mostly despair. At one point in our relationship, he went away to prison for a while for some other nonsense that he was on, and then eventually found his way back into my life. 
It wasn't until my late 20s where I finally realized growing into womanhood, who I am, who I represent, my connection to the matriarchy, connection to my family, connection to my language and to the land, that I deserved better and needed better in my life. I have to say, during the height of the abuse, I didn't know that I could ask for help. I didn't know that services were available. So when we do this work as advocates, when we do this work as organizers, as matriarchs, as elders in our community, it isn't necessarily about providing services after the pain has already begun. But this work is equally important in prevention, in interrupting cycles of trauma and pain. In my old age now, I can reflect back on my time with my abuser with compassion. He had a really rough upbringing, the intersections of poverty, addiction, abuse, trauma, violence, and into manhood, he began to emulate everything that he saw in his life. Trauma begets trauma. Pain is a symptom of trauma. Violence is a symptom of pain. Violence begets violence. This is a really difficult story for me to share. But what I hope it illustrates is that at several points in my life, there were opportunities for my relationship to be interrupted. There were opportunities for me to grow and learn and find healing and resilience, but I just didn't know how. And in those few moments, when I opened myself up and was vulnerable, nobody believed me. And really at the end of the day, our work is couched on that believe survivors, believe them, believe her. And I want to uplift that this doesn't take place enough in Indigenous communities. It doesn't take place enough spaces created for our young people to talk about what and how they define love. How do they see and how can they emulate a healthy, loving, mutually beneficial relationship if it's not modeled for them? These are the spaces that we can fill as advocates and as service providers in Indian country. We have an opportunity to create spaces for storytelling, spaces for healing, spaces for learning, tapping in the matriarchs and elders who are already doing this work in cultural spaces. We have to remove this idea that there is a delineation between doing domestic violence response work and doing cultural work. There is no difference. What we think as unrelated to the community or to domestic violence victim services is actually the very backbone of our solution. Cultural practice is relevant. Addressing racism and oppression is relevant. How do those things show up in our own service provision? How are we encouraging cultural practice and spiritual practice for our domestic violence survivors and victims? Are we providing holistic service to the entire family or just the survivor themselves? Jade is from Generation Z. The way they gather for healing, community, and support is different than anything we've seen in previous generations. They are decolonizing the way they engage. They are incredibly forthright about their experiences. Discussions around mental health care, around violence, and around how to prevent it are honest, open, community accountability questions, and I think we can learn something from Jade and her peers. I feel like a lot of kids on the reservation don't really have an outlet. Basketball is like such a big thing on the res because you can turn your internal pain into physical pain in a healthy way. I really just think that everyone has their own battles. That's that resilience. 
Part of the big goal for my work is that we can move our communities to a place of thriving where we're not always fighting, where we're not always surviving something or something tragic. And it's good to hear that sports is part of that healing process and community building for us. And I know what you mean, taking emotional pain and turning it into physical pain. I'm a boxer, which is literally like consensual (laughs) violence, right? (laughs) Like this is this is how I navigate through my own trauma is to punch people willingly who are also willingly taking my punches. That sounds really strange to say out loud. (laughs) Exactly. It's a healthy outlet, you know? Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is possible to continue to evolve the way we address violence. It is possible to continuously evolve the way we serve these communities. So my primary audience for our conversation is providers of victim services, educators, healthcare professionals. Many of them will be non-native, if not most of them will be non-native. So this is your opportunity to give them some piece of wisdom or some need to know information. What would you like them to know when they work with your community and with your people? I think that I'd really want them to know that even if somebody is shut off or closed off, that that doesn't mean that they don't want your help. A lot of people don't know how to express their emotions in healthy ways. So if you ask them a question face to face, they don't really know how to answer it or they don't want to or they don't know your intentions. So it's honestly about relationship building. If you can't connect with the person, if you can't get them to talk to you, then it's up to you to really just try harder to do that. And especially with children, some of them overshare, but a lot of stuff is hard when you're trying to talk about it. I feel there needs to be some sensitivity training maybe, or if they're on the reservation, every time that I personally talked to a counselor, I wasn't really happy with the outcome of it because I didn't feel heard or listened to because they knew my family or something. So they were talking about those instances instead of my personal experiences. So basically, if it's a complete stranger or if it's somebody who's like active in the community, you can take a really different approach to whoever you're talking to. It's really sound advice, sis. I appreciate that. Thank you. Working with Indigenous communities requires more than professional relationships as we historically understand them. Community is a cornerstone to service provision. The relationship of who we are as advocates, researchers, educators, etc. are more important than any credentials or certifications we can offer the community. The community needs to know who we are to them before we can assert what we're doing there. I am a social change associate with the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence, but more importantly, I am a citizen of the Nimipu Nation. I am a baby matriarch, a daughter, a niece, a sister cousin, and a granddaughter to countless other matriarchs. I am a storyteller. I am the storyteller, namesake to my fifth great grandmother. I call in the names of my ancestors and my grandmothers when I connect with other elders in the community. I story my connection. Part of these stories that you've heard over these podcasts do exactly that. These are community members who have storied their connection to each other and to me, and now to each of you as advocates, in hopes that you will improve your service provision, in hopes that you'll find avenues through storytelling to build better relationships as you serve families who are adversely affected by domestic violence. I hate the term best practices because it doesn't really allow for fluidity or nuance, but I want to reiterate a few takeaways from these conversations. When you work with Indigenous communities, please consider the following to improve and build your capacity in a meaningful way. 
Number one, work from a community's strengths. Holidays, storytelling, celebrations, include and facilitate access to traditional healing, ceremony and medicine, art, holidays, storytelling and celebrations. An example of this is using horse therapy. Another example is field trips with storytelling through ancestral homelands. Another is creating spaces for traditional gathering or harvesting. Number two, learn cultural relevance, learn jurisdiction, learn sovereignty. How are you incorporating the indigenous language? What language are you using to address the Native American families and youth that see you for services? Are you creating support groups that center storytelling experiences? Are you listening for story data? Do you understand what story data is? Number three, address oppression. Violence occurs at the intersectionality of racism, transphobia, Eurocentrism, socioeconomic access, and I could go on and on and on. We absolutely need to keep an ongoing system of training going. The training around addressing oppression needs to be ongoing. Building capacity is a practice of inclusivity and cultural relevancy as much as it is a hygiene. As often as we shower and cleanse our bodies, we need to be addressing the intersections of oppression and marginalization in our work to end violence in Native American communities. Number four, understand that no response is a response. If a survivor or a victim is unfamiliar with your intentions, unfamiliar with who you are, you'll have to keep showing up over and over again before trust is established, before community is built between you and the victim. Even when you're not working in your capacity as an advocate, connect with the community over and over. Are you showing up to community events? Are you showing up to training events? Are you showing up to table at powwow? Are you attending powwows? That's one example of many. Every agency needs a training that helps y'all engage with the community that you are trying to serve, especially if you are not a member of that community. Again, that training also needs to be ongoing. I offer these takeaways as a synthesis of some of these stories that we've heard in these podcasts. There is no checklist, there is no how-to manual in serving Native American families impacted by domestic violence. But what I can tell you is that there is a way of building community and solidarity with us that makes addressing violence and it makes addressing these tragedies much more holistic, much more encompassing, and it allows us to center the humanity not just of the victim, but of the community as a whole. Thank you for joining us for Stories in a Good Way. I hope that you are able to take something meaningful away from our time together. I hope that you are able to implement these stories and this new knowledge and these experiences in the work that you are committed to serving Native American communities. The Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence has a supplemental webinar series showing up in a good way, available to advocates, educators, teachers, students, etc. We want this knowledge to be available to you so that we can each share in the effort to build wellness, justice, equity, and love in these Native American communities adversely affected by domestic violence. We're all in this together. Thank you. That is all.